So that was a big story. That was the front page of the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it had a huge impact at the time. This was in 2017. Yep. Um, got a lot of attention. A lot of uh, people are, you know, one of the reasons that uh, the editor said I should take a look at it is that they know people are very interested in food. And uh, whether they're getting what they they think they are, you know, supply chains are kind of opaque. We don't really know where our food comes from. And the editors were, were right. We, it, I can't remember how well it did online exactly, but it did very, very well. It got a lot of attention. It got attention not only from, you know, readers, but a lot of readers, but, you know, Congress, uh, some people in Congress took note and uh, that was the beginning of a, a bit of a campaign to straighten things out. Yeah, so I'm curious. Uh, do you think it has straightened things out? <laughs> um, no. Welcome back to the Real Organic Podcast, Episode 6. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label that distinguishes soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock and educates on the differences. Today's guest, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Peter Wariski, speaks about uncovering fraud under the USDA organic label. He wrote a series of investigative articles on the failures of the National Organic Program published in the Washington Post. To ask us a question or share thoughts about any of our podcast episodes, please call 347-ORG-FARM. I'd like to thank everyone for subscribing and remind you to visit our website, realorganicproject.org, to become a real fan. Now let's get back to the conversation between journalist Peter Wariski and my co-director Dave Chapman, discussing the large quantities of organic milk, meat, eggs, and grain that don't meet consumer expectations for the organic seal. I'm talking to Peter Wariski today. Um, a journalist who has worked at the Washington Post since 2001. Peter, welcome. Well, thanks uh, for having me. A longtime fan of your work. Um, I see that you shared in a Pulitzer Prize at the Miami Herald for for uh, Hurricane Katrina coverage. Uh, uh, Katrina, I was in Katrina too, but it, the Pulitzer was for the uh, Hurricane Andrew, which is you know ah, kind of ancient right. history. But yeah, yeah, it's a big deal to get a Pulitzer, though. <laughs> yeah, congratulations! Yeah, and you got we were happy you got about a, that. You got the Fetty Award from the uh, National Press Foundation in 2011. Could you explain a little bit what the Fetty is? Um, I honestly, it was it was an award about uh, that they created that year, I think, and it's it's. Or the, I'm, I was the first winner or the second winner. Anyway, it has to do with how, uh, stories that show how policies in Washington affect uh, people across the country. Um, a lot of times we write about things in D.C. and then don't really follow up and see what happens in, quote unquote, the real world. And that story, uh, that award was it's meant to honor the best coverage uh, that, that follows up on, on where these things go. Yeah, great. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today. Um, so you did a series of articles in 2017 um, about the National Organic Program and, and really about the failures of the National Organic Program. Could you tell me how you came to that series? How did you get started? Um, that one was just an idea that the editors had, um, sort of vague and broad in, in the way that they described it. One of the editors said, geez, the organic section at my supermarket is gigantic now. Those guys, what's going on there? They're making so much money and it's becoming such a big deal. And uh, the prices I pay are quite a bit higher. So take a look at it and see if... Um, what we're getting is is really organic and that was the beginning of 
uh, several stories that we did looking at how well the USDA was um, policing uh, the system that they'd set up that, you know, millions and millions of dollars are, are, are transacted based upon the, you know, the USDA organic label. Yeah, yeah. And, and was, was milk the obvious first choice, the first place to look? Um, there were so many places to look. Um, <laughs> I, I think we took on milk first because um, there was a lot of interesting ways that we could see whether people are abiding by the rules and whether the organic uh, program was policing it correctly. And, you know, the key, uh, one of the key issues in organic milk, or the, one of the things that distinguishes organic milk is it's supposed to be from cows that are on pasture. And that what was interesting to me about that was that we could really show without actually even getting onto the farms or into the barns, whether or not they were complying with that rule. Um, we went out to a, uh, it's hard to call this a farm. It was just like so massive. It's 15,000 uh, cows um, out in Colorado. And we could see and drive around the property and see that there were you know, out of 15,000 cows, only a few hundred at any given time are ever out on pasture. So that we could look at it that way and decide whether or not they were complying. But the sort of ingenious um, trick that um, Pete Hardin came up with was to take a look at the chemical constituents of the milk, which um, you can tell based on the chemical constituents whether a cow has been uh, uh, eating grass or eating corn or whatever, they might be feeding it in the barn. And we could tell again that just as you would think based on how few cows were grazing, that the, the milk from this very big um, organic dairy was not coming from from grass. And then we, uh, we, then we looked and saw that uh, the inspections that were done there were pretty flimsy. Yeah, yeah. So, so there are several things there. One is that uh, that on a very obvious level, the quality of the milk is different based on what the cow is eating, and which is, of course, the organic story, which is that the food is different based on how you manage the soil and based on how you how you um, provide for the animals, and. How long did you, this, this was the Colorado dairy for Aurora. It was, it's, I believe the biggest or certified organic dairy in the world. At the time, I think that's correct. Whether I haven't checked since then, but there are a couple of other big guys, as you know, that are, are, seem to be doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. How long did you spend working on that story? Longer than my editors wanted, which uh, is almost always the case. Um, but uh, probably three months, something like that. It took a long time. It's, it wasn't an easy story to put together. We, I mean, we went out there and visited, and we actually had a drone fly over the farm just in case. Like, I was driving around, and, um, and then I, I hired uh, someone to drive around the farm for several weeks afterwards, just to see whether or not maybe the day that I went out there, there just weren't any cows out there. And, um, you know, every time the, the guy we hired to do that um, looked out, it's the same thing. It was like a, a tiny fraction of the cows that they uh, were milking were out on pasture. And then we got the, the, the drone to do it. So it was sort of like, a, and then we had to do the chemical analysis. So it was a bit of a, it, those are my excuses. That's why it took a long time. Yeah, yeah. How how many visits did you have to to the Aurora site? Uh, between me and the the guy we hired, probably six. Yeah, yeah. What time of year was it? I mean, was it was it pasture season? Yeah, it was. I can't remember exactly, but we made sure that it was. It was toward the end of pasture season, but it was definitely within pasture season. Yeah. So that was a big story. That was the front page of the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I think it had a huge impact at the time. This was in 2017. Yep. Um, got a lot of attention. A lot of uh, people are, you know, one of the reasons that uh, the editor said I should take a look at it is that they know people are very interested in food and uh, whether they're getting what they they think they are, you know, supply chains are kind of opaque. We don't really know where our food comes from. And the editors were, were right. We, it, I can't remember how well it did online exactly, but it did very, very well. It got a lot of attention. It got attention not only from, you know, readers, but a lot of readers, but, you know, Congress, uh, some people in Congress took note and uh, that was the beginning of a, a bit of a campaign to straighten things out. Yeah, so I'm curious. Uh, do you think it has straightened things out? <laughs> um, no, uh, you know, I one of my regrets about the the the, the business, in a way, um, is that you know we can write a lot of stories as we did it in organic, because, you know, we started with milk and then we got into imports and then um, chickens and, uh, you know, raised a lot of issues. And then um, Congress did put up more money for the USDA's National Organic Program. So, I mean, I thought maybe things would get better. Um, I can tell you that, you know, just this week, I got a call from somebody very credible um, who has recordings of somebody saying that their um, organic grain that they're importing is not actually organic, which is another one of the stories that I'd written about. So it's the same exact thing, large grain shipments, um, reportedly, you know, according to these people uh, fraudulent um, and you know you see time and again uh, in various news stories that, that by other outlets you know raising questions about different organic farms um, usually large um, and um, they so it's it doesn't seem to me that it's straight <laughs> I mean maybe it got a little bit better I don't know they, they did spend more money but um, the results, uh, for me, it's hard to tell any difference. Yeah. So um, you did do some follow-up stories. For, one question before I do that. Uh, were you welcome uh, to tour the farm? No. <laughs> That's, <laughs> no. They, um, I mean... The first organic dairy farm I went to, I uh, it was in Texas, and you know they basically chased me off, and I can't remember, but I felt you know not safe. Um, which I mean, I I do a lot of stories that people might not necessarily like, but this was actually one of those times where I said, oh, "This is not a good." This is not a good place to be. And so, yeah, they, they didn't ever invite me on, didn't say, hey, come look and see see for yourself. It was uh, never that situation. Yeah, yeah. And so it, the, the thing that's irritating about that yeah. is that they, uh, you know, their public relations, you know, they all have nice websites and uh, make you think that, uh, you know, Every 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 gigantic corporate farm looks like some um, little family farm from fifty years ago, and that there's you know complete transparency, but uh, there isn't. In fact, usually, and this is partly for for biohazard reasons, they have big warning signs saying you know get out of here. And what would the biohazards be? Well, like in uh, chickens, they're afraid of. Um, Mm. avian flu and stuff like that I'm, I'm not sure what it would have been uh at a dairy but I, i'm not that familiar but th th that's the stated reason that they don't want any visitors yeah yeah um 
So there was a follow-up to this story. Uh, uh, there was actually a formal investigation by the USDA to see if, in fact, Aurora was complying with the rules. And you covered that also. Could you could you tell us about that, what you remember? Yeah. I mean, they went out there and... Um, you know, based on my story and asked them questions. And despite what I thought was overwhelming evidence, which is like photographic, uh, chemical evidence that they were not producing grass fed, pasture raised cows. Um, you know, despite all of that, they, the company, uh, told them uh, we're, we're doing, we're, we're fulfilling all of our obligations. They went to the state of Colorado, uh, their inspectors and said, um, why didn't you find anything? Is there something wrong here? And they said, no, uh, everything's fine. And then they closed the books and that was it. No, nothing. Yeah. Um, there was uh, one on-site inspection, and um, Francis Tickey, who um, was on the National Organic Standards Board, asked the person at the USDA in charge of that inspection whether they had made an announced or unannounced inspection, and she said, well, yes, it was announced. We made an appointment, yeah, and that, all the cows were on pasture that day. Yeah, shocking. Um that does seem to be one of the big problems, you know. I mean, there's two. I think that a lot of consumers are surprised by two things. One is that you hire your own uh, inspector, the certifier, and that nearly all of the inspections uh, are announced. So, you know, human nature being what it is and given the amount of money that's involved and how much you can make by selling conventional products as organic, uh, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that there's some mischief going on. Yeah. Do you have any idea how much money is involved? I mean, like a big dairy like that. I, I, I don't remember the numbers, but it's a lot of money. Um, just... Um, like uh, one of the stories uh, we did was about this uh, shipment of, uh, I think it was corn and wheat or something like that. And it comes over, it starts in somewhere in Eastern Europe or Turkey. And it, it, um, it starts off as, I traced the documents back. I had a good source on this. And I traced the documents back to the or origin. And when it, it left port, it was conventional grain. Along the way, um, it, it magically became uh, organic grain. The, the documents were changed. And um, in, in doing that, I think that price roughly doubled. So, and it was a whole ship, basically, of grain. So there's a lot of, lot of money to be made. I have been told that that in terms of the grain fraud, that that's pretty much organized crime over in Eastern Europe. <laughs> and uh, in fact, somebody from the FBI told s someone I know who has been uh, involved in investigating these things that she should really beware of having her email hacked, her phone tapped. Pretty scary stuff. Yeah, I mean, these are you know, not nice people. Yeah. Yeah. Did, 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 were you ever concerned about that kind of, kind of invasion risk? No, uh, uh, you know, I didn't, I was, I think it would have been scary, especially uh, if you were in some of those areas. Um, but in the United States, I, I didn't, you know, except for that one incident on the Texas farm where, you know, a guy shows up with a shotgun rack. Um, uh, I haven't, I didn't feel threatened. I, yeah. It's kind of part of the business sometimes, but I, I didn't really notice it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so grain fraud was your second big part of the series. 
And that was also a, a big, that landed with a big splash. I think, I think of, of all the things that you put out, um, you know, the chickens and the, and the, and the, the cattle, the CAFOs, there's actually a fair amount of support in Congress for that, but there's very little support in Congress for fraudulently, uh, stealing uh, the market from American farmers and cheating American consumers. So I think that one of all, everything you wrote landed most, most heavily in Congress and they actually allocated a fair amount of money to try and stop it. I, I don't believe that they have been the no. least bit successful. Yeah, no, no. Like I said, I just like uh, last week I got the call from somebody saying, uh, <laughs> I got, recordings of somebody saying that they're bringing in a lot of grain. That's totally bogus. Um, and the sad thing is, um, yes, uh, the this does have sort of uh, a lure for a congressman to say, I, I want to keep the bogus grain from overseas out uh, because it's hurting American farmers. But, you know, it really, you know, an, a gigantic organic dairy that's not really organic is hurting a lot of American farmers too, because there's a lot of American farmers who've invest smaller uh, operations, 200, 300 um, cows, and they are being crushed by these gigantic um, organic, so-called organic operations. And they, um, I think it's a little regrettable that they don't pay attention to these to these people who are also being hurt. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the organic organic farmers in America, dairy farmers, are being put out of business right and left right now. Yeah, I mean, it's heartbreaking because I get calls from these guys all you know here and there, less and less since the series was a few years ago. But uh, yeah, it's just heartbreaking because you know they took the time and it does take time and they lose a little bit of money transitioning from conventional to organic and then the prices were they and they did that based on certain prices for organic milk and now that it's being flooded by what might not be organic milk uh and the prices are coming down and these guys are getting crushed yeah there was a there was a, a, a story in Business Insider that cited a Washington Post report, and I actually didn't see the original report in the Washington Post. And it says that they, that they, the Washington Post, visited seven farms in Texas and New Mexico in 2015 and saw a vacant pasture. So it's just, it was your story, but it was a, yeah. an earlier version. Yeah, that, I think that, that and, was just tucked uh, into uh, the... One of the stories, yeah. I went out there. That was sort of an, un, I guess I forgot about that because, yeah, that was sort of like, uh, I guess I was working on that milk story longer than I said uh, because, yeah, I went out there and I was like, wow, there's no cows out, but how do I prove that, you know, maybe I just hit it on the wrong day or whatever. And then, uh, yeah, that yeah, that was the beginning of that. So it was yeah, we were kind of working on it for close to a year. Yeah, I thought it was longer. Than yeah, three it was. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always trying to pretend that I do it more quickly than I actually do. But yeah, and I read somewhere else that those seven farms produced more milk than the 450 certified farms in Wisconsin. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. Yeah, they were gigantic. Remarkable. And they, yeah. you know, it was too hot. You know, it was like not the ideal place to have dairies because it was kind of hot, uh, like too hot during the summer, I think, for, for, for cows to graze, if I recall. Yeah. Yeah. Out in the desert. So one of the things that has been a little amazing is that to me is that you managed to... Um, discover and prove uh, at least uh, one shipload? How many, was it one shipload that you discovered of fraudulent grain, or was it more than one? I think there was more than one. We had um, one, uh, you know, it was kind of dead to rights. And then there were a couple of others that were at least suspicious. And, and at that time, 
you did this with a very tiny budget. Yeah, we, there was no budget. It was me. <laughs> there's, there's you. And, and yet the National Organic Program has said, well, we, we don't have the budget or the resources to deal with this. And yet they are a multi-million dollar organization. And their primary mission is to protect the integrity of the, nat- of, of the organic label. Yeah, I don't understand. Because, uh, you know, at least some of the time, uh, people who've given me tips about fraud of one kind or another are people who've already gone to the National Organic Program and laid things out uh, and that it doesn't get it back then anyway. It was not getting picked up and investigated. And yeah. as we could see from the investigation and after the milk story, um, there's reasons to doubt how tough the, the scrutiny is that comes with the National Organic Program. Yeah, yeah. So, um, is there anything you want to add to that about grain before I move on to chickens? <laughs> um, grain. I have one question about that. It seems to me that there might be some sort of unholy alliance between fraudulent grain imports and fraudulently certified CAFOs because what makes a CAFO thrive is cheap grain. And, uh, you know, that the whole point is that they're not depending on pasture. They're depending on grain that they're buying in. Yeah. And they're claiming that that grain is organic. So I'm just curious. Do you think that there's a synergy for those two? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, there were times when I traced some of the organic, the so-called organic, uh, grain to various CAFOs and said, Hey, did you know that this is probably not organic and it came from this ship and blah, blah, blah. And, um, I, I, at least in some cases, people said, Oh, that's horrible because I'm trying to run a organic dairy and, or organic, uh, cattle and, um, there were others, though, that I don't think they really cared. They're just like, it was cheap, and it said organic, and that's all I need. Because they were meeting the letter of the law. They could sell the beef or whatever at uh, at the prices that they wanted to, and that's all they cared about. Yeah. You know, the, the fun thing about that was a fun story to do, I gotta say, that organic one, because of the, the grain one. Because, uh, you know, we had all these these import documents, which I was completely unfamiliar with. And um, this organic grain was fumigated. We, I mean, we, the documents were just like so strange to me, that, you know, because we, we found that there was a document showed that the, the grain had been fumigated, of course, with, you know, chemicals that are not allowed on organic uh, produce or, or crop grain. And um, I don't know, that, that story I, I had a, well, I had a lot of fun doing that when I have to say it was kind of disgusting the the outcome of it but the actual investigation itself was um, it's pretty fascinating and I think that's one of the problems is that there's a really high bar for anybody um, like a reporter to get into this because you have to understand how the inspections work for the organic program and then you have to trace things back and it's really hard you don't know you know, I would try to figure out, I would go to places that were selling grain and try to figure out where their grain was coming from and then go back. And it's just really, to get the paperwork to actually prove something is difficult. And, you know, there's more than once where people were saying, if you get this wrong, you know, I'm going to sue you. So, um, I mean, that's always a risk um, or something that's, or often gets brought up when you're writing a, a story like this. But um, it's it's just a very difficult, um, opaque business uh, to investigate. Yeah. Well, did you do most of your investigations um, from a desk, or were you flying around to ports and, you know, skulking around the docks? Um 
Well, I mean, the dairy stuff, I was out driving around dairy farms. Um, the grain one was a little bit at the ports and a lot of just like trying to get people to talk to me and give, give me documents like from Turkey and other places. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me that, um, such a large percentage of the organic, uh, food sold in America comes from other countries. Yeah. It's astounding. And I think that if we looked more closely and I don't know that anybody is, we'd find that there's a lot of, uh, fraud there. Yeah. Yeah. It, especially interesting to me that we're importing organic grain well, for cattle feed because we are the major I grain know. exporters of the world. Yeah, that's the big riddle. Corn, right? I mean, we're, we, we export tons of corn. But uh, for some reason, we import organic corn. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about... Let's talk about chickens and eggs, because that was the the third big part of that series. And, you know, just to tell people that each one of these, each part of the series involved several stories. It wasn't just one story. There was almost always a follow-up story. I think in the case of Aurora Dairy, there were, there were probably three or four follow-up stories. Aurora was responding, and you were responding, and then the USDA responded. So... You know, there was an ongoing drama unfolding. So let's talk about chickens and eggs. How did you get into that? Well, that one was sort of one of those that just pops up because, uh, well, it's easy to see uh, that there would be a story there because there had been a lot of debate over this pasture rule and how much space chickens should have if they're considered organic and, um, you know, even basic things like what is considered outside, um, were being debated, um, whether, whether a chicken, you know, if a chicken was like under a roof, uh, and on a concrete floor was, that was somehow considered outside. And so it just, what was interesting about that one, that's sort of different than the other ones because the, the other, the, the, on the other ones, they, they were fairly clear rules and they're being violated. In this case, there were rules and uh, they were being interpreted in a way that I don't think any consumer would, would think was fair. Um, and so that's that's how we I got into it. It was just something I, I just started looking at it because it was a debate. It was like just sitting there. And I, I decided I would go and look at some of the um, organic egg places that, um, you know, said that they were complying. And the USDA eventually said that they are complying, but nobody would have expected it based on what was actually going on at the, in their uh, chicken operations. So did you go inside some of these chicken operations? Hmm. Yeah, I think I did. Um, I, I, yes, I did. Um, and they were just, um, and I saw some good ones and I saw some bad ones. Um, and, you know, again, you have uh, usually the bad, you know, what I'm calling a bad one is one that I think is operating in a way that consumers would not consider up to their organic expectations and you know chickens crowded together um like in tiny quarters and not allowed in, in there's nothing nothing pasture about pastured about them even though that's what the rules call for um you know putting a, an animal out on um concrete floors is, doesn't seem um like what people would have expected of chickens, uh, of organic chickens. So um, I did get into some, and um, that was another one that, again, caught a lot of people's attention. Yeah, yeah. As you say, um, 
the huge chicken CAFOs are often meeting the letter of the law, but certainly not the intention yeah, of the and, law. Yeah, and in and, and some cases, I think that, um, I think the, they're meeting the letter of the law as a very generous uh, industry attorney has interpreted it. Um, I can't remember what the exact pasture rule was. Do you remember? I can't remember what it was. I, I should have. They must have outdoor access so they can exhibit their natural behaviors. Yeah, these chickens were not doing that at all. They were inside on concrete. You know, it was like they just were. It wasn't. And and then I've I've seen you know chicken or you know legitimate organic chicken places, and they, they just run outside and they're like kids at recess or whatever. And um, it wasn't the case at these, at these, again, it's the very large operations um, that have figured out a way to make money, lots of it, by, um, by present, giving people something, labeling something organic, selling it at organic prices in a way, even though it doesn't meet most consumers' expectations of organic food. So when you looked at when you looked at at uh, Aurora and you looked at these large chicken CAFOs and you looked at the fraudulent grain imports, you also were seeing real pasture-based uh, dairy farms and and uh, chicken farms where the chickens really got to be outside yeah. and real grain farms. So yeah. there was always a stark contrast. Yeah, I mean. It reminded me in a weird way of, um, because you saw the, I mean, in, in the case of, um, the milk, for example, there's a lot of Amish farmers who were really feeling, feeling the heat of the, the lower prices. And there are tons of like small chicken egg farms and, um, you know, just like family operations. Um, and it reminded me quite a bit. Uh, I mean, these people are very genuine. Hardworking, you know, you know, basically small businessmen. They're farmers, and it reminded me quite a bit of a story that I had written just uh, a year before. Or so uh, that, that I did the the organic stuff, which was about hospices, which seems like a weird comparison, except that hospice also started out as sort of um, a reform movement. People wanted. Thought, thought we were dying too often in the hospital and people weren't getting what they needed toward the end of life. And it started, you know, in church basements and um, hippies, um, you know, people who think, uh, who are like a little bit outside the box. And um, it started off, and it's it's really, you know, good hospice care is a great thing. And then um, the federal government got involved because they started Medicare started paying for it. And then once that happened, big, big business started coming in. And, and it, it, you know, the big organizations didn't run it in the same spirit that some of the innovators did. And the same thing I thought happened in organic farming, where you had a lot of back to the earth, 60s, 70s people. And um, they, Created this really interesting product that a lot of people wanted, and um, and then it got um, you know compromised when very large companies came in. I mean, and a small company could also you know, work do bad things as well. But um, it, it so happened that some of the large companies come in and they see uh, money to be made, and they they're not nearly as interested in some of the ideals of the original founders of the uh, of the movement whether it be hospice or, or organic food yeah yeah all right i will come back to that but i want to ask you about the OLPP and um which was actually the organic movements uh you know there's this group of people um I don't know, two to 500 people who really spend a lot of time and energy trying to 
keep the USDA honest around organic. And I, and I would have to say that as hard as these um, well-meaning people have worked for the last 15 years, it hasn't gone well. And one of their efforts to try and cut off those smart lawyers uh, who were defining outdoors as being under a roof on concrete was to create something called the OLPP, the Animal Welfare Reform. And it would have been uh, a big deal. It would have, uh, according to Miles McAvoy, the, the head of the National Organic Program, it would have led to the decertification of three quarters of the certified organic eggs in America, which when he told me that, I, you know, Miles I told you that? And he did. We were in a meeting with his boss, Eleanor Starmer, and um, it was it was when Eleanor um, met with a group of us who had who had created a, a moratorium, a letter calling for a moratorium, and we got many many organizations to sign it, a moratorium on certifying hydroponic, and we we sent that to Secretary Vilsack. And actually, it was followed quickly by a letter from Senator Leahy, also calling for a moratorium on new certification of hydroponic as organic. And, you know, one thing that Tom Vilsack did that was uh, really good was to appoint Eleanor Starmer as head of the AMS at the USDA, the Agricultural Marketing Service. So she was, she was the boss of Miles McAvoy. And she pulled him out of a National Organic Standards Board meeting to meet with us. And unfortunately, she, she was telling us that she couldn't do it. She said, I wrote the letter. To, in, you know, yes, we will have a moratorium until we get this figured out. On, on any new certification of hydroponic, which has, you know, clearly been called uh, that it should not be certified as organic, you know, in an earlier recommendation from the right. National Organic Standards Board. And she said, but the lawyers at the USDA said, I can't sign it because we'll just get sued. And I thought to myself, well, you're going to get sued either way because we're going to sue you if you don't sign <laughs> Yeah. But <laughs> I think she fears their lawyers more than she fears ours. So I think that's uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and at that meeting, I said, "If Eleanor, if you don't sign this, if you don't issue a moratorium, this hydroponic is going to be too big to fail in, in organic certification. And Miles replied, and it, it was, I remember it very vividly. He said, if, if we can pass the animal welfare reform, and I'm working very hard to pass it, he said, we will that will lead to the decertification of three quarters of the eggs in America. So don't tell me we're afraid of too big to fail. And of course, the punchline to that is that um, within a year, Miles was gone, the OLPP was gone, and the chicken capos yeah. are thriving. Yeah. 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 I, I'm, yeah, it's sad. It is very sad, and it's it's such a perfect example. It's it's sort of like you know Hillary Clinton winning by three million votes but losing the election. It, you know, there's something off about that. So I'm just curious: Did you cover the the animal welfare reform and you know all of that drama when when Trump's USDA came in and immediately pulled it? It had, the last day of Obama's administration, they enacted it. And the first day of Trump's administration, they pulled it for further study. And four months later, they, they took it out back and shot it. Yeah. I remember it happening. And I think I wrote a story about it, but I can't say for sure. Um, because it, it's yeah. like one of those things that, uh, like you said, it was first delayed. And then, uh, it, which is usually the sign that, that it's, not got long to live, but um, and I, I don't remember whether we actually because it's, it's hard to figure out when to write the story. Do you write it when you know it's dead, which is like when it's delayed, but you're kind of guessing, or do you wait till it actually uh, gets pulled, which is often done qu 
quietly. And by that time, we were in the middle of um, the Trump administration. Yeah, yeah. I guess being being pulled for further study is sort of like being sent to a task force, and both of those are like being put in hospice. It's like death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, do you have any thoughts about the impact of uh, Trump's administration on the National Organic Program, or had you moved on really by then? I'd pretty much moved on, but I would be, um, you know, I'd be very surprised uh, if it had gotten better. I, I don't, uh, I don't, I have not paid a lot of attention, but I haven't seen any reforms, new rules, um, expanded oversight happening there. Yeah, there was a chilling moment in the um, when the House subcommittee had a hearing on organic, um, had House Agriculture subcommittee had a hearing on organic and um, uh, Undersecretary Greg Eibach was being grilled, actually, by um, a, a Republican member of the House who said, why in the last 10 years have you not acted on a single recommendation from the National Organic Standards Board? That's 20 recommendations you've ignored. Wow. I and, did not know that. Oh, it was a, a moment. And, of course, uh, Eibach dodged the question and Rodney asked it again and he dodged it again and he asked it a third time. I was quite impressed. He wasn't going to be put off. And Ibaugh finally re replied and he said, you know, we're really looking forward to picking new members for the National Organic Standards Board. Well, yeah. You know, there's, I'm sure you've heard, um, the thought that maybe USDA doesn't want to have an organic program because there are other parts of American agriculture don't want it. And uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't help some of organics competitors if, if it's a thriving program. And so it's hard to see how they, I, I, let me just tell you one anecdote. It was the first time I met the former head of the organic program, Miles McAvoy, and I, th I have to go back and check. And if I'm if I'm wrong about this, I hope you won't use this part. But um, if I recall cor correctly, I asked him. So, what's the advantage of organic food, or is organic food better, or or anything? And he wouldn't answer. Um, so if you have somebody who doesn't actually think that uh, organic food has any benefits uh, in charge of the program, you wonder how much is going to get done. You know, I'm going to say something um, in defense of Miles, and uh, and you're not you're not making an accusation. What you're saying has got to be the truth, and that's because uh, the USDA's position is that they are never going to promote organic as being better than conventional. So as in Miles's job, he could not say it was in any way superior. Their job was to say, we're verifying the, the honesty of the label, that it is what it claims to be. And uh, so I, I don't fault Miles for that, for saying that he can't say that it's better because that he would have lost his job immediately. I, I, fault, I fault the National Organic Program because I don't think they have fulfilled their basic mission, which is to maintain the integrity of the label. And right. I guess my point was not that if that is the case, that they can't say it. Um, it seems to me you, you might, it, they might be better served if they have somebody who actually believed in what they were selling, but. Yeah, well, uh, uh, yes, it's. I, I I couldn't agree more. Um, I'll say another interesting thing about what you just said, which is that I I do believe that there's been a big transition 
in terms of how people in the conventional world relate to organic. Uh, I know that um, in a Senate hearing uh, where the Senate Ag Committee was questioning, oh, one of the major hydroponic so-called organic producers, and he was quite friendly and supportive. And the organic producer was quite friendly and supportive to CAFO chicken production being certified as organic. Well, you know, Pat Roberts has uh, one of the two biggest um, CAFO chicken producers in, in the world in his state. And, you know, so it's just another profit center now for conventional. If you look at the Organic Trade Association's membership, and it's composed of, of a lot of the biggest players in conventional agriculture, you know, like General Mills, like, um, um, you know, um, Purdue. <laughs> you know, the, the, the big guys have seen that they're going to have an organic line, too. And uh, they don't see it as better. They just see it as another profit center, I believe. That would be consistent with what I've seen. Yeah. Um, okay, just a couple more questions, Peter, and I'll let you go back to your life. Um, have you followed the Real Organic Project's creation and growth at all? Yeah, I know that you, you did one story on, on the farmer protest because my wife was honored to have her picture <laughs> um, credited in the Washington Post. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've been... You know, I pay attention to it. Um, it's I've been I've been watching. I've, it's uh, it's nice to see a group that takes these issues seriously. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you found our podcast. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to today's conversation, can be found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode six. Please join us next time for an interview with Real Organic Farmer and former National Organic Standards Board member, Emily Oakley. In addition to describing her experience on the NOSB, Emily talks about what it's like to live and farm in a region that is becoming rapidly populated by industrial chicken CAFOs, some of which are getting certified organic. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms, and we'll see you next time.